Hello and welcome to the Life on This podcast. It is me, Sanderson here, and I'm looking out of my window on a beautiful sunny day and I'm super excited to introduce you to a wonderful thinker uh, called David Rondell. He's my guest, but we're doing something which is a bit different this time because David is a philosophy professor and he has just written a book on Richard Rorty. And in this podcast, we're going to use it to explore the ideas of the philosopher Richard Rorty. And the reason that that is important is that uh, he wrote a book, Richard Rorty, and it was about the future of the left, the future of politics, and it suddenly in 2016 started getting passed around by everyone because it seemed to predict Donald Trump. And so it is such a useful thing to reference as uh, Richard Rorty's work, Achieving Our Country, like you look at it now and you're like, this, we've gone into this world. And so I, I thought I'd start by just reading you just some of the parts of that book, which made it seem so hyper relevant. Here goes. Members of labour unions and unorganised, unskilled workers will sooner or later realise that their government is not even trying to prevent wages from sinking or to prevent jobs from being exported. Around the same time, they'll realise that suburban white-collar workers, themselves desperately afraid of being downsized, are not going to let themselves be taxed to provide social benefits for anyone else. At that point, something will crack. The non-suburban electorate will decide that the system has failed and start looking for a strong man to vote for. Someone willing to assure them that once he is elected, the smug bureaucrats, tricky lawyers, overpaid bond salesmen and postmodernist professors will no longer be calling the shots. Yeah, it is as though he took an x-ray and he put it through our time and he wrote that in the 90s. And his critique is just so cogent and so important and uh, I thought it would be really useful to go over it a bit before we go and meet uh, David Rondell just so that you're aware of it because you know this is the culture that we're living in now how can we go and achieve our country achieve our world if we don't go and figure these things out what Richard Rorty said is he said that there was the reason for this, the rise of this strong man. It happened because uh, the left slightly changed direction in how they were trying to uh, help people. And it came from this idea they had that America was essentially broken. And uh, so this is again from Richard Rorty. For if you turn out to be living in an evil empire, rather than, as you have been told, a democracy fighting an evil empire, then you have no responsible to your country. You are accountable only to humanity. If what your government and your teachers are saying is all part of the same Orwellian monologue, if the differences between the Harvard faculty and the military-industrial complex or between Lyndon Johnson and Barry Goldwater are negligible, then you have a responsibility to make a revolution. He's contrasting this with an old left, which was more concentrated on uh, raising wages, on living standards and change within the system. This is going to be the last bit I read out. And so while the left's back was turned, the bourgeoisification of the white proletariat, which began in World War II and continued up through the Vietnam War, has been halted and the process has gone into reverse. America is now proletarianizing its bourgeoisie and this process is likely to culminate in a bottom-up revolt of the sort Pat Buchanan hopes to foment. I mean, Pat Buchanan is old news. Uh, unfortunately, this stuff is just so current and it's when I saw that 
David had just written a new book on uh, Richard Rorty, he seemed like an ideal guest because the purpose of the Life on This podcast is to not only give you, the you, the listener, wisdom so that you can live your best life, like we also have a very specific thing that we're looking from and that is to really try to answer like what can we do to go and fill the hole left by the decline of religion and in the UK that's been declining for so long but how can we help individuals have a sort of thriving spiritual life whether they be religious or not religious how can we go and create communities which are intentional how can we create societies where we're raising our consciousness and this is stuff we need to fix we need to answer this question like how can we go and have a type of society and a type of politics where everyone is included and this book just predicted that once you go and let that cat out of the bag then actually things can start to go into decline and so uh, this is the last bit One thing that is very likely to happen is that the gains made in the past 40 years by black and brown Americans and by homosexuals will be wiped out. Jocular contempt for women will come back into fashions. Words which had previously not been heard, I didn't say them, uh, will once again be heard in the workplace. All the sadism which the academic left has tried to make unacceptable to its students will come flooding back. All the resentment which badly educated Americans feeling about having their manners dictated to them by college graduates will find an outlet. So that is the setting of the scene. That's your little intro of why this topic is so important. And now I'm going to get out of the way and uh, introduce our amazing guest, David Rondell. Welcome, David Rondell. To, oh, is it right? And then, I mean, is, is it Rondell or Rondell? Rondell. You had it right the first time, yes. Okay, Rondell. very good. Yeah. Well, yeah. guests, this is uh, David Rondell. How are you doing today, David? I'm very well, Sanderson. Uh, thank you so much for, for inviting me onto the program. And so, David, where are you calling in from today? Uh, I'm calling in from Reno, Nevada, uh, which is, uh, for maybe your viewers aren't aware, a beautiful small city. Uh, nicknamed the biggest little city in the world uh, that's sort of right nestled right in the um, uh, Sierra Mountains in the western United States. Yeah. And uh, at the moment, are you in your house or are you on campus? Are you still sort of social distancing? Yeah, well, school uh, school is out for summer, so uh, I'm mainly working from home these days. Uh, during the, the bulk of the pandemic, too, I was uh, teaching classes online uh, from home, from this very chair, in fact, um, and that's, uh, yeah, that's where I come to you. The uh, very chair that David yes. Rondell talked from. <laughs> I've heard I've heard discussion of this legendary chair, yes, which yes. has accepted the seat of Rondell. Uh, right. and, uh, <laughs> and so I invited you on because you've just released a book that you edited on uh, Richard Rorty. And there was in 2016, uh, a passage from his book, which really spoke to the moment that we're in about the cultural left, about what uh, what could happen if people no longer feel that they have a stake in the politics and it just it has not diminished in relevance uh since uh since that happened and so then i saw that you're releasing a book on rorty i thought let's go and interview the guy but before we get to there it would be great to find out uh we're going to ask you our two questions we ask all our guests and the first one is what was the worldview uh that you grew up in a philosophical religious spiritual sort of uh, go with whatever you want 
Yeah, so uh, I, I was born and raised in uh, Toronto, Canada. Um, my parents uh, are both were both immigrants, are both immigrants to Canada. My father uh, is an Israeli, uh, and my mother is uh, Belgian from the French-speaking part of Belgium, uh, Wallonia, I believe we call it, yeah. Um, and, you know, I would say that the, the household that I grew up in was uh, nominally Jewish. Uh, my mother was uh, raised Catholic, but actually converted to Judaism. My father uh, is uh, and was Jewish. Straight in the um, club, boom. Straight in the club, exactly. <laughs> um, but it was, it, was, it was not a religious upbringing. It was uh, a kind of culturally Jewish upbringing. Um, there was never any talk of God. We, we weren't very observant as a Jewish family. We didn't really celebrate uh, many of the holidays or, or anything uh, like that. I'd say the household that I grew up in was fairly left-wing politically. We would frequently talk about, you know, the old union left, uh, less so kind of cultural left, but about workers' rights and fair compensation. And my mother was very involved with the labor union, uh, actually with British Airways, the, the, the British airline um, in Canada. Um, and she sort of rose the ranks in the union there. And so that, that was a very, the kind of dominant worldview that I grew up in, I think, yeah. What would you say is one lesson you think that this secular world that we're in could learn from them? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a great question. Um, it's not an accident that religions have been around for so long and, and continue. I mean, they're obviously providing human beings with something valuable, I imagine. Otherwise, they'd, they'd, they'd probably just wither away. But, you know, there's a great line from a recent book by the English philosopher John Gray. Maybe you've heard of him. He's sort of a public intellectual. He's written a book about philosophy and cats. It's called Feline Philosophy. And a, and a great line early in that book, he says that people philosophize uh, for the same reason that they pray. Um, and, and he thinks that it, he makes the argument sort of in a, briefly in that book that um, uh, both prayer and philosophizing, they're both responses to the kind of inherent anxiety that human beings feel. We, are, we live in a world that is essentially uh, sort of dangerous. Uh, the future is essentially unknowable. Uh, and we are, as a result, kind of inherently frightened creatures. And I think one of the things that religion does, as does philosophy, maybe in its its own way, its different way, um, is it provides some kind of calm, uh, some kind of uh, anti-anxiety antidote. Um, and I think that's why people continue to be drawn to uh, religious traditions and to religions and religious practices. Just I'm just speculating. I mean, I, I don't know, but but I imagine that it's anti-anxiety properties is probably a pretty big uh, thing that um, religion gives to the world. So, you know, are there ways to capture uh, those anti-anxiety um, uh, properties in, in, a, in a secular uh, vocabulary or through secular means? I, I imagine that that's true, um, possible, but perhaps faith in a, in, in a divine being or um, maybe the sort of the regularity of attending um, a church or something like that, or, Prayer is a kind of way to remove oneself from maybe anxious thoughts in the moment. These might be some of the, the reasons and, uh, that these practices have persisted for so long and um, maybe some of, the, some of the reasons why that you know, so many people, millions, hundreds of millions continue to derive meaning and fulfillment um, from religions broadly understood. Again, I'm just spitballing, I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, that sort of relief of anxiety, I just think is so, like vital because if not you would just be constantly terrified of like so many you wouldn't be constant but like so many different ways that things can go wrong and there's i can't remember who it was who made the point that like there's some people go oh religion's religion's just a crutch it's like 
Well, people get given crutches when they go to hospitals because crutches are really helpful things. It does make me think that maybe with the life on this project, we should sort of call ourselves Life Alaxa Pro and go and sort of medicate, like sort of advertise ourselves as a sort of anti-anxiety uh, remedy and just watch, watch it, watch it roll in. Uh, so now it would be great to go and sort of dig into your sort of work in on Rorty and this sort of like, if you could start off just by giving a little pen picture of Rorty and then to sort of like go into this uh, picture here. So who is Richard Rorty? Yeah, so Richard Rorty is, uh, or, or was, I should say, he's, he's passed away, uh, but he, he was, uh, I think, one of the most famous American philosophers of his generation. He was born in the 1930s uh, and passed away, I think, 2007, uh, unless I've got close to that time, unless I've got that wrong. Um, and, you know, in a way, there's kind of two Richard Rorty's. There was a young Richard Rorty who was this sort of uh, in his own words, this thrusting young analytic philosopher at Princeton University. He was writing papers, tightly argued uh, sort of specialist papers and on recondite topics in the philosophy of mind. And then sometime in the late 1970s, he kind of pivoted uh, towards becoming much more of this sort of public philosopher who would comment on, on art and politics and culture um, and, and increasingly um, writing for a more general uh, audience. Um, I think that's the sort of Rorty that you're alluding to here, that sort of public facing Rorty. Um, so in 1996, he delivered a set of lectures uh, at Harvard University that later became the book, uh, Achieving Our Country, which is really about, uh, uh, really about a kind of a story that he tells about the trajectory of the American left. So, you know, to what extent this, his story applies to the British left, I don't know. That maybe you can fill in some details uh, or you can, you can tell me if that, if that holds. But um, according to Rorty's sort of telling of the story, and this is sort of in you know, thumbnail version, um, he, the, the left used to be broadly about redistribution. So you know, we think about the left, it was concerned with economic justice, with better wages, uh, safer working conditions, the left was intimately bound up with unions and the labor movement more broadly. Um, and Rorty's, Rorty's, Rorty's parents themselves who were kind of socialist activists were very involved in that old, old left as he, as he called it. And uh, Rorty, you know, Rorty thinks that we, we owe a lot to that left, you know, the 35 hour work week and safe uh, factories and all the rest. Um, but sometime um, you know, I think in the in the sixty in the mid to early early to mid sixties, and and centrally around uh, the phenomenon of the Vietnam War, the old left shifted. Something dr dramatic happened with the American left in particular. It kind of retreated into the universities. Um, it started theorizing in in sort of grand ways. It was no longer a reformist left that believed uh, that incremental change could over time render the country a better place. Suddenly, it, it, the prevailing thought was the whole system needs to be replaced and right, it became a radical uh, left in that, in that respect. And you know, Rorty, I think, is correct to compliment this new cultural left that emerged in the wake of the Vietnam War for some of the progress that it's helped to deliver. Uh, he thinks that it's made us a more decent country over time. Um, the tone in which educated men talk about women or uh, people of color is, is better than it used to be, thanks to this cultural left. But one of the things that's happened, Rorty argues, 
um, in the left's kind of uh, coalescing around this cultural agenda is that, you know, to put it crudely, it forgot about the importance of money and redistribution. Um, so the left is in the business of unmasking and deconstructing, and there's lots of theory um, that gets bandied around, philosophical theory, um, but uh, there's no longer a close association with the labor unions. Um, real wages for American workers hasn't really gone up in my lifetime. I mean, I'm, I'm 43 years old. Um, and looking uh, and good so for it. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah you too. Um, so that's like generally the story that Rorty wants to tell about the left, right? The, 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 this new cultural left, which mainly exists in universities, has kind of eclipsed this old progressive labor-oriented left. Um, and that created a certain kind of vacuum for someone like Donald Trump to enter, uh, if you want to sort of fast forward a little bit. Yeah. And, and so yeah. I guess that's, well, no, thanks so much for like going and like dropping people into it, because like that was something that when I first read about it, it really sort of seemed to chime with lots of things which have happened. I know that whilst the uh, history of the US and UK are obviously different, likewise their history of left uh, left wing politics and racial politics are also very different. There are lots of things which sort of get brought over, particularly in our direction, I'd say. So it's also, I think, really relevant. And it'd be great then to like just go and like maybe just go and bring us to 2016, because what happened is this passage from Richard Rorty's uh, book suddenly started getting passed round and it was I've, I've, I saw it in an Atlantic article an article in Vox it got sort of shared online loads and yeah what was it like for you to sort of as a sort of Rorty uh, a file to sort of be in that moment and suddenly see it sort of jumping up into relevance again yeah it was it was it was quite exciting I have to say not not the 2016 election results for me <laughs> um, but you but, finally but, got your man in and might I say no. that you've got a lovely red hat you're wearing no, that's that's not true. Uh, <laughs> listeners, um, emphatically not. I, I, I do think I think Rorty would have would have been disgusted, uh, revolted by by the the rise of Trump for what it's worth. Um, but he did sort of see it coming, uh, and it was a bit of a thrill for those of us sort of working in arcane Rortyana uh, to have kind of have this passage suddenly be discussed uh, in in the New York Times and. and major venues like that. It was, was an interesting moment. And I think, I think the passage really resonated with a lot of people because it intimately linked the kind of decline of the progressive left with the rise of this strongman, um, who, strongman figure um, who would promise that once he's in power, uh, right, the, the postmodernists and the tricky you know, lawyers and overpaid Wall Street people would no longer be calling the shots. And, um, and I think Rorty was right there to emphasize that uh, they sort of the you know broadly sort of badly educated Americans would increasingly come to resent um, having their manners dictated to them by sort of college graduates that that sort of thing. And I think that that just hits the uh, hits the nail on the head in, in an important way about what the rise of Trump and probably Brexit in the UK. Uh, um, so how how to explain the rise of this new sentiment that um, is gripping large portions of the country anyway. And I think it's really interesting to go and look at what was one of the primary causes of that. And he says that it is this idea that in the case of America, that is irredeemable, that it is a change in how people view the past. And, and I think that's super interesting today because 
we're in this place where the past is so hotly contested on all sides and the th there are a load of people who feel that you know they're you know winston churchill's no longer being if he's if he's not a hero then he's a villain and it would be great to yeah for you to go and like explore like what what was rorty's view of of that change yeah it's it's a good question i mean i think if we if you had asked a typical american person in the year sort of 1950 uh if you had asked them the question is american might in the world a force for good i think uh, you know, without question, they would have answered, well, of course it is. I mean, this is, you know, this is a, the force that helped defeat Hitler for, for crying out loud. Uh, if you ask the same, if I were to ask that question of my students today, uh, young American, you know, 19, 20 year old Americans, I don't think I'll, there, there will be one person in the group who thinks that that's the case. Um, and so how to explain- There won't be one person, would you say? Who thinks that American military might is, a, is ultimately a force for good in the world? No, I, I don't think so. Um, Oh, maybe one, but not, yeah, not yeah, a lot. Yeah. It's a and, minority view. Yeah, and the it, and would you say that even into the past, that that is still that they would still say that that is the case? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I think most people think it was it was correct and just to join in the fight against Hitler. Um, that's, <laughs> that's, a fair, that's a fair view. <laughs> that would be such a it's a it's a very lonely argument to make. I'd yes. say in most places. <laughs> Right, exactly, exactly. But I think, you know, what's maybe what's interesting, um, and this is what I think separates the American academic class from just regular Americans, is that most regular Americans still have some fondness for their country. Um, I think they recognize I, By the way, I just want to stop you right there. It's like so strange that you have to put it in those terms. Most Americans still have some fondness for their country. I mean, what a weird place to have got to, which is that far, that far removed from uh, a sort of sense of patriotism, some residual fondness. Well, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, I think that the, one of the enduring messages of this cultural left is that America is evil right down to its core. And it was founded in bondage and slavery and colonialism and oppression. Um, and listen, there's a very bloody blood-soaked history uh, of the United States that we can tell, as is the case for, for England as well, uh, no doubt. You know, for Rorty, what I think was really interesting, Rorty, one of Rorty's main recommendations for the American left is that it try to mobilize a sense of national pride, a sense of patriotism. That would help the left become more, more relatable uh, to, to more and more Americans who, as I say, most of whom generally like their country, uh, you know, warts and all. But there was... Uh this really interesting discussion on uh, Rorty and his sense of history. And I'm just going to take a moment here, just in case people think this is going to be a discussion on historiography. This stuff could not be more relevant. Like we are, this is in the news the whole time. If, if you're not on one side or the other, you're probably in the middle going, what on earth do I think? I've got my parents arguing about mummy, daddy, please stop shouting about my own past. Is that we haven't really been able to reconcile in a healthy way the unpleasant sort of parts of uh, history with the noble parts of history and there is a an essay which sort of goes into that and it sort of actually uses uh, the work of a psychologist or psychoanalyst called Jacobson about how actually we've got to come to terms with when we're growing up the fact that our caregivers 
will have been really lovely to us, but also, you know, they fuck you up, your mum and dad, they fuck you up, they do. <laughs> you know, that also Larkin was, was, yeah. was yeah. right about that. And so yeah. there's this really interesting idea of us having to come to terms with these two sides, but the debate is not had in that sphere because at the same time and this is what rorty says it's like oh, most people are able to be proud despite knowing about the massacres and the slavery and it's like well actually a load of people don't know about those things but for a lot of people they're 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 not taught about that side of things and so he's like coming from this place of like oh no if you know these noble parts and you also know these sort of like ignoble parts and then together you can come up with you can still be proud but that's not really happening, that sort of wide-eyed view of our nation's past. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, maybe this is a little bit kind of technically philosophical, but Rorty was uh, uh, what, what philosophers call an anti-essentialist uh, in his philosophy. So he didn't, he didn't think that something as big and diverse as America or you know, Britain has an essence, right, a sort of fundamental nature. Um, it's a mixed bag of good episodes and bad episodes, of, of fools and knaves and also decent humans trying to do um, important things. And so there is no sort of, you know, if you ask, if you were to have asked the question of Rorty, well, is America fundamentally good or bad? I think he would have said, there's no sense that we can really give to that question. It's, it's always gonna be just a, a competition uh, about how to narrate the story, right? What, what episodes do you wanna single out for, right? Do you wanna accentuate and what, what other episodes in the, in the nation's past do you wanna you know, uh, maybe downplay. So do you, you know, if, and I think, you know, uh, English people can ask themselves the same question. I mean, do you want to talk about Shakespeare and, and the Beatles uh, or, uh, right, the sort of brutal, you know, brutal colonial adventures? Uh, you can talk about both, uh, but neither is going to be the sort of the, the linchpin to understanding the essence about, you know, what is the country fundamentally like? What is the essential nature of the country? For Rorty, there is no essential nature. It's a work in progress. It's a mixed bag. Um, and so there are no sort of knockdown arguments that someone could come up with that would sort of prove that, you know, England is evil uh, or America is good or something like that. Yeah. And I guess what's quite interesting is that then he goes to this, this view of actually, but there is something bad that happens if we do end up looking at our past as evil. If we start to see that we're born from sin and sin is inherent to us, then that actually means that we're sort of losing agency. We're sort of crippling ourselves in some way. So it'd be really interesting to go and, yeah, if you could go and unpack like why, why that is the case in his view. Rorty does say that, uh, and here he, he invokes uh, Walt Whitman, the, the American poet, and also John Dewey, the uh, philosopher, kind of maybe Rorty's biggest hero. Um, he thinks that both of them wanted to tell a story about America that explicitly repudiated the idea of original sin, uh, the idea that the country is sort of irredeemably stained somehow. Uh, and the, the, the reason that that's important is because if we are sort of, if we're fallen, if we have a fallen nature uh, as a country, um, that'll make self-improvement uh, difficult, if not impossible. Um, we, we need young people in the country to see the country, he thinks, as a work in progress. We need to see the future as open, undetermined, uh, we have to see our uh, sort of the nature of the country as um, something that's capable of changing and, and morphing and moving with, with, the, with the times, um, remaking itself perhaps in a new generation. Um, and so that, that's very important. A vocabulary, you know, to narrate the, uh, the history of a country, 
using the vocabulary sort of built around the notion of sin, um, that's going to impede uh, the imaginative ability that, that citizens have to, uh, in his line, right, achieve the country, to move forward um, and to sort of try their best to improve mm. things. Uh, he thinks it will stifle that. Yeah. Do you think that's true? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think we often in the United States use the vocab a vocabulary of sin. You know, for example, you know, slavery is often described as the country's original sin, to kind of put it in biblical language. And if that's just meant as a kind of metaphor, um, then I don't think it's overly harmful. But if it is kind of taken at face value that there is a, a fall in nature, <laughs> that that we need to be saved by something right divine, um, I think that, that that's not a good uh, working um, ideal uh, for the country generally. Yeah. That's what strikes me is that there is, I have yet to fully expand it and block your ears if you're sensitive. I would like to sort of one day really work out my good theory of history in that everyone in the past was good and also a and the like you look back on it and it is right the way through like it's you know the Spanish went and invaded the Aztecs and the Spanish Empire was an empire. The Aztec Empire were all there, they weren't there going sort of making daisy chains and sort of uh, like, you know, creating hospices and just looking after people in a peaceful way. There's everyone like slavery was there was something in the UK where the National Trust had to started putting up signs outside. And I think this sort of indicated it for me. They started putting outside uh, signs outside stately homes if they were funded, if they were created with slavery. And I don't have anything against that. I think, you know, that, and this goes to show the thing. It's like, oh, no, well, this is what you should concentrate on. Well, actually, those signs should be outside the Jorvik Viking Center, also Sutton Hoo, the Anglo-Saxon burial ground, also Westminster Abbey, also the Roman villas at Fishbourne. Like, pyramids of Giza. The right? pyramids yeah, right. of Giza. It's yeah. like slavery is awful for the everyone who's involved in it, but that's why it has been used throughout history as like a social technology, which is found everywhere, really. And so like there would be no world which could really exist if we looked at everyone and thought that like every single one of our ancestors was, or even the entire world was built on sin. It seems that to me, that seems uh, obvious, but it doesn't, that doesn't seem to be an argument which is in the culture at all. And I have not really put it on his Twitter because you don't want to start whataboutting slavery. Well, that's true as well. Yeah. I mean, is your, is your, is your view that, uh, I mean, it sounds like maybe you're talking about a human essence here that we're, we're fundamentally brutal and that we, we need to put our foot on, on someone's neck. Uh, uh, no, I wouldn't say that. I think that like, it's just that we, in fact, there were also those people who uh, enslaved people were probably also nice to their daughters and were nice to their pets. And the, I, I really like the uh, idea from anthropology, which is of critical sympathy, where, you know, you're studying a tribe in Papua New Guinea. I can't remember. There's, there's one uh, tribe which, you know, has got initiation ceremonies, which involve making young boys drink semen and having sex with young boys. And, you know, these anthropologists are there and, you know, that's generally pretty poor form in every other setting. And they're, but what they're doing is they're trying to see it as in its own context. And what really I went and was did some an anthropological short course. And I found that the person teaching the course had critical sympathy for everyone except early anthropologists. 
early anthropologists had to be judged for being uh, racist and sexist and patriarchal and orientalist because they made these opinions like, oh yeah, these guys were also a tribe making decisions in the context of their time. And it is ludicrous to go and bring a lot of the preconceived ideas that we have in our current time into the past. I, I take the point and I think uh, would I would, would Rorty sort of generally agree with that? I think yeah, he would. I think he would say that as a general rule, we've been pretty nasty with one another, uh, and that's been the case going back as far as we can probably know. Um, but perhaps it needn't be the case to the same extent or in the same way going forward. Uh, improvement is a genuine possibility there too. So he would want to certainly resist any kind of essentializing claim about us humans that we just we just are enslaving and enslaved creatures. We can do better as we look forward. Yeah. That's why my, uh, and this will probably be beeped out, my good theory of history will, the good is the genuine, like everyone is generally good as well. They like, you don't want the, the people who come from uh, Mexico to suddenly think that because the Mayans went and committed lots of sacrifice that they should no longer look back at these people who created amazing feats of engineering and had sophisticated writing and were fantastic sculptors and farmers that they should now like no longer feel proud of them or like the Ashanti kingdom in Africa or again the pyramids these are all things which people should feel pride for in the in a way which is useful to what is uh, in the present now. And so I guess that goes back to this other idea, another idea that I wanted to, which is comes from Rorty, which I think is really, maybe we've been sort of speaking around, is this idea of inspirational liberalism, of like a different, a different sort of liberalism. And I thought that that really like I really spoke to this moment and it'd be great if you could sort of expand on that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think maybe related to, to that is this important. Is this, I mean, I think we talked about this, that the importance of, of the left trying to kind of mobilize a sense of national pride. And, you know, Rorty would often remind his readers that in the older days, sort of before the cultural left became the dominant, the dominant version of the left, the United States was filled with sort of pretty radical left wing people who nevertheless kind of loved their country. It's kind of an odd thing to even imagine nowadays, like a radical leftist who's also an American patriot. It's almost, it almost feels like a category mistake. But if you think about sort of John Dewey or Irving Howe or Eugene Debs, these were, uh, even to an extent, perhaps Martin Luther King Jr., who was of course also very critical of the United States, but the leftism, but then it nevertheless tries to channel a sense of, uh, of, of inspiration of what's possible um, it's future-looking, fundamentally future-oriented, which is uh, one of the te main tenets of the philosophy of American pragmatism. That's the basically the school that Rorty belongs to, the philosophical tradition that he is most allied with. Um, and so, yeah, what what really matters is sort of what what's going to be the case. What could what we might do tomorrow? Um, I think looking forward is a lot more important for Rorty than looking backwards. Um, imagining. A new, uh, a better future uh, is more central than sort of litigating maybe episodes of, uh, of the past. Um, and I think, look, that connects to an important idea in politics, something that, you know, for better or for worse, Donald Trump understood quite well. I think there's this old line from Napoleon. Uh, Napoleon said something like, I don't care who writes a nation's laws so long as I can be the one that writes its songs, right? And, you know, and the idea, the idea there is if you can, if you can sort of from in a populist way, like really 
get the you know get people excited, make them make the hair on their arms sort of stand up and you know give them a sense of tingle. That's going to be a very powerful force politically. Um, I think one of Rorty's critiques of the left and of liberalism more generally um, is that it's sort of you know quite fabulously failed uh, to do that. Um, I mean, liberalism kind of evokes the picture of sort of a a civil servant, you know, filing papers in, a, in an office or something like that. It's not, it doesn't have ins, great inspirational power. Um, and so, you know, one of the things, one of the ways that Rorty frequently wrote about uh, American liberalism and American democracy was sort of by invoking you know, figures like Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau and Walt Whitman. I think he thought that left politics needed more inspirational oomph uh, than it uh, traditionally has had. Yeah. And I guess there will be some people listening to that, and this is a critique which is made of Rorty, like in order to have this thing which looks at the past as something which is does not define us, you do still have to grapple with things like race. And the, I guess that what some people will be thinking is, well, okay, so, you know, I've got this sense I can go and understand my history, I don't need to be ashamed of it, I can go and look at the positive sides of it and just understand that there are these things which have happened, which have really held people back and going to look to the future. Does that not like in some ways, doesn't that sort of you know, keep people aside who have got these sort of major, major issues which need to be looked to first? Maybe, isn't that the order of the day? You know, doesn't this slightly move over too easily, you know, the issues around race, particularly in the US? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think Rorty was uh, uh delusional about the centrality of race. Uh, I, I don't think you can really understand what the United States is and how, what it looks like, what the shape of its institutions without grappling seriously with the history of slavery and, and racism. Um, I, I think Rorty probably would have agreed with, with that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's certainly he's not calling on anyone to kind of like ignore the past or sugarcoat the past or I mean, no, of course. I mean, it's the work of historians and 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 citizens to to look carefully at that and to take it seriously. Um, I think Rorty's view is just that nothing that a nation has done in the past should be taken as a final word about what it's capable of doing uh, in the future. I think just just that. I mean, so there's you know, of course, uh, any serious person in the United States needs to think hard about how race and racism works to advantage some, to disadvantage others, um, how so much about how the country is is explainable through that um, lens, um, how, how, neighbor, how you know, neighborhoods are built, um, how zoning laws take effect, um, how medical care is distributed, so much. I mean, every, everything, every little last thing has a kind of racial element to it in the United States. I think Rorty would have agreed with that. Um, and of course, he's not advising anyone to you know, gloss that over in any way. Um, but none of that should be taken as the definitive final word about what the country can do, what, what it can be, the directions that it might go looking forward. And I think the way you put it like that, there is something which can just be so easily understood from, you know, a therapeutic point of view, from the point of view of anyone who's had to deal with difficulties in their life, of maybe having committed failures themselves that does not define that person forever. There will be people who have committed crimes, made mistakes and repented and feeling that you are broken or worthless, you know, clearly will not help you sort of in the in the rest of your life. And so I suppose then if you go and now, so we've spoken about lots of 
these different areas. Like, are there any sort of concrete things that you think people could like put into practice from these ideas? Like, you know, you've gone and heard these ideas of Rorty, like how could that go and help people make sense of the world? Yeah, so I think one, one, one sort of nugget from Rorty that might be useful in that regard is, is perhaps the one we were just kind of alluding to, which is this idea that I mean, how things are at the present moment is not an indication of how they must be uh, go, uh, in the future. And I think, yeah, people who are suffering in uh, presently can maybe use that as a source of calm, uh, that, you know, th that this too shall pass, uh, or, or maybe uh, it's, not, it's not a life sentence. Um, you know, this is the idea that the pragmatist philosophers call uh, meliorism. Um, so meliorism is neither optimism nor pessimism. Optimism would be a kind of a view that things will indeed be better. Pessimism is the view that things are going to get worse. Meliorism is merely this sort of stance which says it's, it's possible that things might get better. It's not, they may not, <laughs> um, but, but they could get better. And, um, and as long as there is that kind of meliorous possibility, there's, that can occasion hope about, about the future. And I think hope is a very powerful um, emotion. Um, so that's one, I think, nugget that comes not only out of Rorty, but out of that whole American pragmatist philosophical tradition that, that he's a part of. I might mention another quick nugget, which I, you know, one of the things that initially drew me into uh, Rorty's uh, philosophy is that Rorty likes to sometimes um, uphold a kind of... Uh, a division or a bifurcation between public and private. He thinks that sometimes, uh, right, you know, you know, public projects of making the world better or reducing suffering, they don't have to fit together neatly with like our private idiosyncratic inward projects of self-creation, like what we, what we do with our solitude as uh, Alfred North Whitehead, uh, that's how he defined religion, you know, what we do with our solitude. Um, so, you know, we have, I think we live in a culture nowadays that insists that everything is political, that every action we take or don't take, every, you know, omission or commission needs to be appraisable by some more, you know, publicly moral standard. But one, of the, one piece of advice that Rory gives us is that you shouldn't worry too much if, you know, the things that you're obsessed with in your private life, the books or poems or music or artworks or the people or whatever it is, you know, whatever, whatever makes your private life kind of run. You shouldn't worry too much if that can't be brought together in a synoptic vision with uh, your, some of your public commitments of uh, reducing uh, suffering and um, distributing wealth better and these sorts of things. So I, I, I always found that a kind of nice, you know, a nice thought. Like, you know, you don't have to be anxious that, you know, or you don't have to sort of justify having hobbies or something like that. You're, you're allowed to have those kinds of pursuits without worrying that they are or are not you know, serving the, the greater good of humanity. Well, one idea which I really liked was this idea of coping that he spoke about. When he wrote about it, it was actually to do with really like truth itself uh, and that, you know, that there's no such thing as uh, sort of external truth of these th essentialisms that you were sort of speaking about that, and in fact, it's really about how it helps us cope with things. And I thought that, that just really chimed with me because it is, again, probably in line with that meliorism, this sense that, you know, as long as whatever, you know, whatever helps you cope. I don't know, it just seemed really powerful that, that they almost went from, I tell you what, that almost does uh, in sort of antithesis with like what sort of Rorty said, where you don't need to have a public truth, which is in line with your private truth. You know, that, that, that can end up being something where uh, your view of the world is just like in your life, you can just go, oh no, well, this, this just helps me cope. And that, that seemed comforting. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think crucially for Rorty, um, all we humans ever do is cope. Uh, there's not some higher kind of activity that's not coping. You know, we're, you know, D Rorty's thoroughgoing, uh, sort of a Darwinian thinker. He has a Darwinian um, conception of human beings. We are Nietzsche's great phrase. We're clever beasts. You know, so we're sophisticated animals. And there's no point in our history at which we just sort of stopped coping with our environment in various ways, the way that other animals do, and started doing something magnificently different, like, I don't know, representing it or, you know, um, you know dealing with it in some non-coping way. So all, you know, our best science, our, mo our most moving poetry, everything human beings do, Rorty thinks, should be understand uh, as coping. I mean, there's, there are more sophisticated and less sophisticated varieties of coping, to be sure. Uh, but there's not anything that, on his view, coping uh, contrasts with. Um, coping goes all the way down, uh, as it were. And um, I, I, I like that thought, too. I guess one of the areas which I found as someone who is uh, not religious, but is embarking on a project which looks to spiritual communities and congregations as something which is very important uh, and but something which is lacking from our world, yeah, at the moment, these sorts of uh, intentional communities where people are able to uh, like try to unify some of their private uh, lives and living a good life with helping other people with sort of trying to make the world as it should be not the world as it is, is that, you know, for him, like it was, it's described that religion is a conversation stopper. And it seemed that there was something which was almost like a not like the moment someone goes to god it seems to be the end of an argument whereas i don't know it seems like a not particularly uh sophisticated view of god or that's true of some that's true of some people's versions of god which is just uh you i, I won't gonna you can't have abortions but for other people god is something which is a and like an inner sense and that also then goes against some of the things that I was reading about Rorty, where because he's like, everything is language, that there does seem to be a gap in pre-linguistic part of ourselves, which is a part of ourselves. You know, those when we're standing on a really high mountain, when we're at a gig and we feel tiny and yet massive at the same time, like there is a truth in that. There is, it is an experience. And that's sort of seemed to be missing from his work and something which suddenly is uh, perplexing to me. Yeah, I think you're, you're right. You know, the, the, the chapter in the book that you're referring to uh, where Rorty discusses religion as a conver conversation stopper is written by uh, Stephen Bush, uh, who's a professor of religious studies at Brown University. Um, and Bush, I think, rightly kind of concludes his chapter by saying that that religion as a conversation stopper. Rorty fiddled with it and he sort of, you know, renounced part of it towards the end of his life. But that that won't be his sort of the, the great legacy about thinking uh, uh, about religion uh, that, that Rorty's work will, will leave behind. I think um, it, it is maybe a little bit of a sort of sloppy argument uh, as far as some of Rorty's arguments go. But I think, you know, maybe the best way to understand what Rorty was uh, putting forward was not so much a kind of uh, atheism, although Rorty was an atheist. I think if you had pressed him, you know, is there a God? He would have said, no, there is not. But I think what he was really urging was what we might call a kind of post-theism, right? So a, um, he was kind of trying to envisage a future, a future culture in which, you know, God talk just seems quaint. You know, so it's, you know, no one has, you know, there's been no proof that has indicated to us that there are no 
you know, uh, goblins or something. And yet, you know, nobody believes in goblins. And if you bring up goblins in, in everyday conversation, uh, most people will kind of look at you askance, you know? And so, However, like kind of trolls have suddenly taken on a whole new realness in our ah, yeah. online world. So <laughs> who's to say that Trolls goblins might not, uh, might yeah. not come, come next? Well, that's a good point. It's a good point. Yeah. Thank you very um, much. Indeed. Indeed. Um, but that's what Rorty, Rorty like longed for a future in which like religion just went away. In that respect, I think in that respect, he was like Nietzsche. He hoped that religion would just, or at least organize religion. Now, I don't think that means that Rorty was sort of oblivious to the to the benefits that people get from religion, to the deep human needs that religion um, attempts to satisfy. I think it was just his hope and his wager that those very needs um, could be satisfied in other secular ways, in ways that didn't rely upon positing the existence of a divine. So I think in that respect, he, Rorty might have been a big fan of what you're trying to do here, right? Capture a sort of what what, what's important about religion, what, 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 what it is that fulfills these deep human needs in a certain sense, but without recourse to a, to a divine supernatural being. Um, I think in that respect, Brody would have been on board with what you're well, developing. Well, I mean, I'm going to go and slap that. You, or every website needs a testimonial. Richard Rorty would probably agree with us is going to be on the side of our site. Uh, but I think there's actually, it also points to something, which is again in this idea of inspirational liberalism of something which really tries to touch the soul. And I think there's also really big lessons in community building, which in the, and in the ways that it is different to politics, which also points to this way of talking about the world and the way of talking about progress, which is more inclusive. Because I was speaking to my co-host James, and he runs a humanist congregation in St. Louis. I have run a congregation in the UK. And when people come through your door, you're not saying, okay, this person's gonna vote Democrat, this person's gonna vote Republican, this person's on the fence. You're looking people through the door and you know that like Bob's probably got views on Brexit that you disagree with and Shannon's into aromatherapy, but you're not. And that it's actually by sort of learning about like by creating a space, which is, which is non-political, but which is organized and which speaks to certain things, which are vital, but not part of our day to day. I think it starts to answer some of these sort of issues that he's really talking about. Because like, if you're a political organizer, you're like, okay, you're our in-group. We need to get 10 million of you to the polls. And then we're going to get you to the polls by saying these people are coming for your wives, your money, your whatever else it is. And, and it's almost like the decline of religion has gone and put so much of that, so much weight on politics, because politics now becomes the way that we look at the world and it is the be all and end all. And yeah, it's that there's something in there which is really worth uh, exploring. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And you know, I, I say this as someone who has dedicated his life to studying politics. I, I I'm a political philosopher. That's my training, and that's where where my research mainly lies. But I I think that politics uh, construed in a certain way is a is a lousy, joyless religion. Um, if it's, I mean, if you want to, if you want that to be a stand-in for religion, politics is extremely important, but it's not a good stand-in. Uh, it doesn't, uh, or it frequently doesn't do a good job uh, meeting the needs that religion was designed to satisfy. I think. Um, so I think what you're alluding to is uh, 
is is right on the money. I, I agree with it. And so we're getting to close to the end of our time together, but I'd love to go and take you yeah, from your sort of political philosophical uh, viewpoint. Like, what what are some of the ways that you see out of this? Uh, you know, cultural versus reformist left. Like, what uh, where can you see hope? Uh, what do you think uh, we should do as a society in this area? The best thing that we can do, uh, from my point of view, uh, is to try to resuscitate and rebuild a vigorous, strong, um, relevant labor movement. Uh, I, I'm sure this is the case in, in England as well, but in the United States, we've seen over the course of decades a, a steep decline in union membership. Uh, the unions were sort of crushed uh, during the Ronald Reagan administration and, and, and subsequently. And I think you know that is one of the best ways uh, for, for people to uh, relate to one another, to be in a union together, um, people of different races, uh, of different ethnic uh, origins. And I think uh, you know, it, it also makes the material life of workers better when unions have a bigger seat at the table. Uh, I think that is a, 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 a really promising sort of direction that we could go in. Uh, and I'm given hope by the fact that it seems to be the case, um, certainly in the United States, and I imagine elsewhere as well, uh, that the union movement is once again starting to gain some steam. Um, there have been there have been strikes uh, recently, not too long ago, uh, from you know from teachers, for example, in deep Republican states like Oklahoma and uh, Arizona and other places. Uh, we're seeing Amazon workers try to so far unsuccessfully, but try to mobilize uh, and form unions. So I think there's a there's there's good reason to be hopeful on that front uh, right now. It seems to be that we're that the labor movement is reinventing itself and there's a lot of sort of vigor and um, energy behind it right now. And I think that is all to the good um, to address some of these, some of these issues that you've uh, identified. That makes me really think that I should, uh, we should sort of see if we can go and create some connections between the life on this project and some of those uh, movements, because there's like, there's actually a huge like link between religion and unions, certainly in the UK, the, the, there's a Harold Wilson quote, which I've said many times on this podcast, that the Labour Party owes more to Methodism than Marxism. Uh, and yes. <laughs> that, you know, that creating those links between people is really the start of the start of change. And so, well, look, I'm, that's a, a wonderful place to go and uh, end it on. Uh, if you are part of a union, if you're not part of a union and you're listening to this, go and start one. Uh, or if you hate them, uh, there we go. That's your call. Uh, you know, we're going to be inclusive on this podcast and uh, make sure that everyone feels welcome. Uh, but hey, David, thank you so much for chatting to me. This has been super, super interesting. Where can people go and find uh, your work? Uh, well, you can, if you can visit my personal homepage, if you'd like, it's davidrondell.com. Uh, um, there's, a, there's a list of my, my books and publications there. Uh, if, if you want to uh, more about what I'm working on. Uh, if you want to send me an email, um, I'm happy to chat that way as well. Uh, and thank you, Sanderson, for, for inviting me on the program. This was a lot of fun to have this conversation with you. Oh, thank you so much and have a wonderful rest of your day. Oh, what a great conversation. I absolutely loved that. It made me think of so many new things. I there On that question of unions, it really has made me like go and think about like what are the connections we could make to unions what are the connections between unions and community i 
would love to go and hear what your thoughts are on this. And I think that's going to be how I end. Like, obviously, we've got the life on this community, which is, yeah, it's going really great. And there's so many wonderful people involved in our small groups. Go and check it out in the comments below. You can go and get involved, lifeonthis.io forward slash membership. Also go and find me on uh, Twitter or Facebook at Sanderson Jones at The Life on This Project. And uh, yeah, we'd love to just hear your thoughts on it. So uh, please do reach out and have a wonderful uh, rest of your week. Uh, maybe you're at the end of the week, start of the week, whatever part of the week that you're on, whatever's the next division you're looking, have a good uh, good rest of your life. That's always a great way to <laughs> sign off to make someone feel unwelcome. Uh, yeah, to go and uh, spread love and life if you want to, or, you know, spread uh, jam and butter if that's what you need right now. So thanks so much for listening. Uh, thanks so much to David Rondell. Thanks so much to James Croft, my normal co-host who couldn't make it today. Thanks to Mav Shetty, the producer. Thanks to Roman Rapak and Miroshot for making the music that you're listening to right now. <laughs>